sometimes when we sing songs, I have this uh, thought process in my head, like in a worship gathering like this, where I'm like, what, we should, like, we should do that. Like, you ever, like, been in, a, like, a, a worship thing, and, like, like, the lyric is something like, we all bow down, and then you look around and nobody's doing it, which is fine, but also it's just kind of weird, right? <laughs> so I don't know if you uh, feel super in touch with the goodness of God, but we've just kind of sung a celebration of it, and I thought one more move that we could make would be to just name something good. Uh, there's this idea in Scripture, every, every good gift comes from God, that, like, to know anything good is to know something of God. And I just wonder if anybody wants to, like, holler, like, name something good in your life right now as a way to go a little further into the heart of that. Anybody got anything good? Yes, sir. Bless. Gary's blessed. Yeah, we're blessed to have you here, man. Yeah. What else? Family. Family. Pizza? Yes. And sunlight? Yes. Warmth. Friendship. Flowers. Peace of mind. Say it again. Oh, your dog. Timber darling. Yes. Pets. One more time. Being a boy mom. All right. Yes, sir. Friends. Yeah. Recovery. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. Grandson. I believe that's twice that that particular grandson has gotten a shout out. <laughs> In gatherings today. That's awesome. Yes, sir. Anything else? The library and all its resources. Awesome. Downtown just got a brand spanking new library building. What a gift to the whole community. Your grandson. Okay, okay. All the grandkids, they're all great. Yes. Good, Laura. Thank you. Yeah. Health. Right on. Thanks. Love. Yes. Nap time, familiar faces. Amen to both of those. Yeah. A, a job that provides meaning? meaning? Meaning. Awesome. A job that provides meaning. Yeah. Yes. Art. Art. Yeah. Change. Change. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you for that. I just wanted to go a little further in that direction. Uh, last week, we named some really, really heavy burdens about what's happening in the world. And for us to be a community that tries to tell the truth to one another is to hold that right alongside this other thing, which is uh, that in the midst of some hard things, we're also like swimming in some goodness. And we sang about it, so I thought we should name it for a minute. So thanks for doing that. Um, we are working through the Sermon on the Mount, and today is also the first Sunday in Lent. And I want to just kind of like locate us in the calendar and on the map a little bit. And then we're going to go a little bit further into the Sermon on the Mount and consider further like what it's saying to us. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount, those, those chapters from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where we've been listening since like back in September to what Jesus is saying, where he says first that God wants to give God's life to you, that no matter who you are, what you've experienced, what you've suffered, what you've been through, what's happened to you, that your life is like a ready vessel for God to give God's life to you and to live God's life through you. And then we've been working through all these pictures and portraits of that life, and even some warnings about how we might miss that life. And we're going to go further into that today. Uh, but uh, a little while ago, I was listening to an interview with a, like a public intellectual who said something about this sermon that really rang true for me. Uh, I don't know if you know of a guy named David Brooks. David Brooks is a, like a columnist for the New York Times, and he 
writes a lot of books, and I would call him sort of like a, a classic, sort of like East Coast intellectual, like sort of moderate conservative public intellectual figure. And what's interesting about Brooks is with a long and public career, um, he's had this recent and sort of public turn in his life uh, toward Jesus. And it's, it's kind of fun to hear Brooks in conversation and like on podcasts because often what I discover is that people are sort of surprised to hear somebody like Brooks be so transparent about this turn toward Jesus. And I really enjoy the curiosity that that sort of brings out in people. And there was one conversation I was listening to a little while ago where another public intellectual was talking to him about it, curious about why and how he's made that turn. And I'll never forget what he said. It, it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because it rang true for me too. He said, uh, he gave a long answer, but part of what he said about this turn is he said, I just can't unhear the Sermon on the Mount. I just, at once I read it and heard, like, I can't unhear this picture of life and the possibilities that it created for me and the possibilities that it might create for us if we live it together. And so that, like, really stood out to me. And I think some of us have had that feeling since September, right? That as we really try to, like, listen to what Jesus is actually saying week after week, some of us have discovered we can't unhear it. Maybe you've been encouraged by it. Maybe you've been disturbed by it. Maybe you've been provoked by it. Maybe it's raised more questions than it has answered anything for you. But I think a lot of us have had that feeling, and we want to keep going in that direction, especially starting today with Lent. Uh, if you're not familiar with the word Lent or the season, um, this is what's kind of known as a liturgical season. So this is a season in the life of the church that prepares us for Holy Week and Easter, which is coming around the corner. Uh, on one level, it's really quite simple. The word Lent just comes from the old English for lengthen, which, of course, we're doing this during the springtime, which if in, your, in the northern hemisphere, the days are lengthening right now. So there's not rocket science to that. It's just the season that happens before Easter. But the backdrop behind Lent is actually that like, very early in the history of the church, Easter became the day when new converts to Christian faith would be baptized, which, by the way, we're going to uh, be doing as well, and I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But in preparation for Easter and for baptism, it was the case that people who were going to get baptized would spend this season, as the days lengthened toward Easter, preparing for baptism. And then later what happened is others in the church said, well, maybe for all of us who've already been baptized, we should sort of renew our commitment to the, that baptism. And so we're going to join all of these like, new converts in their preparation for baptism, and we're going to be a part of it too. So that's actually the historical backdrop to Lent as a season of preparation for not just Easter, but for baptism, for commitment, for a surrendering of the heart, for a kind of opening of the life toward all these promises that we're talking about. And we want to take Lent seriously in a few ways. Starting with the Sermon on the Mount, we're just going to keep working it out, and we're going to wrap it up just as we turn the page toward Easter, which it seems like fitting timing, that the whole time it's going to be driving us toward that sort of sacred end. And we also got a couple other things going on, including baptism. So with everything going on in our church life together, we created a guide. And so I'm going to ask our team to pass these out for you. It's very simple. But we wanted to give you some handles, some ways of reflecting during the season so that you weren't just left on your own trying to figure out how to move through this. So we're going to pass these out. Uh, well, these are for everybody if, if you want one. We also have this available online in case you prefer a digital copy. Just go to southlandcitychurch.com. Look for the resources page on the menu, and you'll see a link to this. You could print out another one at home. You could share it with friends, or you could just sort of keep it on your screen to help you move through this. But I just want to like use this to highlight a few things for you that might be helpful during the season. And then we're going to press further into the Sermon on the Mount today. Um, you'll see that we've kind of broken out on this practices and preparation guide a few things that are happening. This year during Lent, we're continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, some of us are considering baptism, and all of us are preparing to celebrate with those who participate. And uh, we're discerning financial commitments to the Tribune Project. More on that in a minute. Let me work that out. First of all, on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if I could, like, encourage you in, for one thing during this season toward Easter, it would be, like, spend some of your own time with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the shelf over there. I think we have a couple left. We have free Bibles if you want to take one home. You can always go online and just look up Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But rather than just, like, hear it from the stage, there can be something really powerful in owning it for yourself. And while you do that, we've just got some prompts here that might help you reflect if it's true in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that Jesus is talking about God giving God's life to you and living God's life through you, you might just want to sit with this very simple question, do I trust that? Is there anything in me that finds that that promise or that offering is reliable? What does it mean to me that God wants to give God's life to me and live God's life through me? That can be kind of big, abstract language, but is that taking on any flesh for you? Uh, do I struggle with feelings of inadequacy? Do I have a hard time believing that God would live God's life in me? Is there anything there that you might want to confront right now? Or how about this? Have I experienced God through someone else? Maybe reflect on that. Sometimes the step that you can take before you might believe that God's going to live God's life through you is to recognize that God has met you in somebody else's life, in somebody else's kindness or love or presence or friendship. And if you've seen it there, maybe it's not a huge leap to imagine you can see it here too, right? So uh, there's some prompts. Hopefully that'll help you if you want to go a little further between now and Easter with the Lent reflection. Uh, next page, you'll see some baptism stuff. Uh, baptisms are happening on Easter. And by the way, you can sign up for that now on our website. You'll see that on the front page. Just scroll through the, like, what's happening stuff. You'll see a link. Uh, but there's some language here that's hopefully helpful for you. Baptism is for people who want to be initiated as Jesus' disciples, who want to live a new life with him, who want to surrender to God and allow God to live God's life in them. It's layered with symbols like death and resurrection, cleansing and forgiveness and new birth. And it's a chance for us as a community to celebrate with you. So if you're thinking that baptism might be for you, uh, we've got some questions here that might be useful if you want to walk through that between now and Lent. And then our team is certainly available to talk with you, meet with you if you want to dig in further. And then uh, on the back page here, the Tribune Project stuff. So hopefully you're all aware that uh, we have been working hard on a new home for Southland City Church because next summer we lose this home when our lease expires here at Studebaker. And hopefully you're aware that like, after a lot of discernment work as a whole community, we've landed on a plan to purchase and renovate the Tribune Printing Press building downtown. Today the update that I'm very excited to tell you is that uh, late last week we finally received a purchase agreement draft on the building that we are vetting right now. Yeah, that's good news, right? Yeah. So that's like a big, long, complicated document with lots of legalese and all that. And don't worry, we have a real estate attorney. It's not just like us on the staff team figuring this out. Uh, we have a really great council of advisors working with us on everything from the property to the financing and all that kind of stuff. But we're working on it right now. And um, we are like just on the cusp of considering all of our individual participation in that financially. Um, I'll resist the urge to like preach all the sermons again, but I do want to draw your attention to a couple of points where we've tried to articulate our values on that in case you're wondering right now. Because I know that a lot of people have a lot of baggage around churches and money and building projects. And that's um, true, and it's, it's part of the history that a lot of us are carrying here. And we want to not only be sensitive to that, but we want to be informed by that. And we want to use some of that bad history to help us do better and so we've made some commitments along the way, and you can find those if you go back to earlier teaching, including uh, a talk that I did on church and giving. In fact, if you go to the giving page on our website, you'll see a link to that podcast episode. 
So I just, if you haven't caught those, please catch those because we've worked really hard to not just like talk about it, but to make some commitments to you, like as a community, about how it is that we're going to make sure our values show up in the process. And then um, before long, like hopefully right around the corner, if the timeline continues to play out right, there'll be a period of time where we all kind of need to discern together, like if we want to make a commitment individually to that project to help fund it over like a two-year giving period. That's coming up, but it's not too late to start thinking and praying about that. Uh, so this guide on the back page just has a few sort of frameworks that might help you process that as you're preparing for that step that we're going to take together in a little bit. Uh, all of that's going on like between now and Easter. That's a lot, right? There's a lot going on right now. Um, one other note that I want to make, which is what happens uh, right after Easter, and I, this is one of those things that's awkward, because if, if I talk about it, it might sound like I'm making too big of a deal out of it, but if I don't talk about it, that's bad. So here's the, here's the thing that's happening right after Easter that I think will be a blip on the radar, but we should probably talk about it, which is um, that uh, actually back in 2020, our leadership uh, asked me to consider taking time away on a sabbatical and that we as a church would pursue a grant to help fund both the church's life while I'm gone and some of the things that I would do. And then, you know, and then COVID, right? Which is the way that every story in this room goes. And then COVID. Um, but we punted that a year, uh, which means last year, while we really weren't gathering much, we tried communicating with you all through the email newsletter, which was like our primary tool to communicate when we weren't together, that we were pursuing the grant for that sabbatical, and later that we got the grant for that sabbatical, which is amazing, and we're very grateful. But once again, we have discovered that not many of us read our emails. <laughs> so I don't know if you are aware of this or not. Uh, we really tried to communicate with you, but the day after Easter, uh, I'm going to go away for three and a half months and spend some time in renewal. Uh, a couple of notes on that. First of all, a little bit about like, my plan. That's not just like Jay uh, on vacation. Uh, because it's a grant-funded process, uh, we worked together with our leadership to design a sabbatical that we feel like will hopefully bo both bring me back better and renewed and like, bring me sharpened for like, the things that we do as a church. And so uh, if you've been around, you know that we often talk about rooted faith and a changing world. It's actually the reason our logo is what it is, but that's another sermon for another day. Um, so I'm gonna spend some time personally just kind of rerouting my faith. I'm gonna uh, spend uh, a while at a monastery and just be in like some silent prayer and reflection and some spiritual direction with the, the brothers there at the monastery. Um, that's just a chance to both be connected in prayer and to be connected to history because it's a very old expression of faith there at the monastery. Um, there'll be some other ways of kind of rerouting faith. I'm also going to do some like cultural exploration, uh, things like kind of studying as much as possible, like communication in the modern world and thinking about how it is that people who have things to say right now say them best because I think communication's uh, an ever-evolving sort of medium. And so we want to be like good at that. So anyway, those, those are a couple of examples of what's going to happen uh, on my side of the sabbatical process. Uh, and then on the church side, you should just know our team's been working really hard, and I could not be more excited about the teaching lineup. Uh, you're going to see a, a mixture of uh, familiar faces here and uh, some new friends of Southland City Church that are going to bring their best during that season. And frankly, I think if you knew everything I know about what's going to be taught, you would be waiting for me to get the heck out of here so that you can hear from them, because it's going to be really good. But we didn't want to catch you off guard with that, and I know there's been a lot to keep track of in the last couple of years. And so this is just the reminder uh, that I'll be away from the day after Easter until the end of July. And I love you all very, very, very much, but it's built into the terms of the grant that we don't get to hang out while I'm gone, which is fine with me. I love you all very much, uh, but I will, I will not be in pastor mode during that time. Um, I think it's great for the church to not be uh, 
in a codependent relationship with its lead pastor, and I think it's great for the lead pastor to not be in a codependent relationship with its church. That's just healthier and better for all of us. And so we're gonna pursue that together uh, during that season. And again, I could not be more excited about what you all are gonna learn and how you're gonna be taught during that time. Sound good? Cool, thank you. All right, let's get to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's get to the good stuff now, shall we? You guys ready for the next text? Here it is, Matthew chapter seven. Jesus says this. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let me read that again. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. How's that feel? My first thought when I read this after reading the earlier stuff from Jesus, is, what happened to cool Jesus? Because <laughs> earlier in the sermon, so much of what Jesus says is so expansive and inclusive. The opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like he is stretching his arms as wide as possible to get his arms around the widest expanse of human experience, right? Like, are you poor in spirit? Have you lost something? Are you meek? Are you aching for things to be made right in the world? Have you forsaken your group as a peacemaker and found yourself without a group so you feel abandoned and orphaned in the world? He says all, in all these different ways, I don't care who you are or what you've done or what's happened to you, God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. Like you hear the, the generosity and the inclusion and in all of that. He says things like, don't judge. Stop dividing the world between insiders and outsiders. You're not the one to decide the righteous and the unrighteous. He talks about like enemy love and blessing those who persecute you. All this big, wide open stuff. And then he gets here and he says, narrow is the road and few will find it. And my first feeling is kind of like, like, what happened to cool Jesus, you know? My second thought is, oh, it's so painfully obvious that he's right. Like, I'm looking at a room full of people who have lived a few years. Not, I'm not calling you old. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> we, we've all lived long enough to just know in our own experience that there are, like, an infinite number of paths by which we can destroy ourselves and one another, right? And that's not news, actually, if you think about it. Some of us have seen in our own lives our capacity for destruction, and we, ju we just know that like, we are really good at choosing things that are really bad, both for us and for others. Some of us have seen really painful examples of the self-destruction of a person in the life of somebody close to us, a family member or a friend, a loved one, who is just better at destroying themselves than they are at choosing life for themselves. Right? For others, it's um, the fact that the headlines remind us, especially right now, that human beings have this incredible capacity to choose the destruction of themselves and one another. Right? I mean, we've seen that in really plain ways in the headlines. And if you see it more quickly in the headlines than anywhere else, I'll just observe. I think it's a fair thing to say that if I see it in the headlines that describe human nature out there, I probably could also be on the hunt for it in here. Right? That just seems like a good, honest sort of reckoning with what you see out there and how you think about yourself. Sometimes the destruction is really, really obvious. It's, it's like the actual destruction of a human life, and you can see it destroying bodies and hearts and minds and relationships. Sometimes the destruction is more subtle. Little incremental steps that we take away from the fullest version of life. 
Little incremental steps that we take away from our fullest, deepest humanity. Little steps that we take that carry us further and further away from love of others and love of self. And, and if it's not dramatic, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Because sometimes it's the little incremental, subtle ways that we participate in that destruction that are the most insidious and the most harmful because they just sneak in, right? I can't tell you how often um, pastor life brings me into a conversation with somebody who, if we look back upon their life, it's, it's hard to like figure out where they started walking away from life. But all they know is they, they've, they've woken up one day and they just realize that they're like really far from their own heart. That there's just this sort of chasm of disconnection between like where and who they are right now and and conversely, like what real life used to feel like for them. Like this just happens to us, whether it's big and dramatic or subtle and insidious. So I might prefer like cool Jesus, <laughs> but I also know like what he's saying is just like very patently, obviously true. That like we are capable of choosing things other than life for ourselves and one another. Um, by the way, this is uh, Jesus speaking in the, in the way that wisdom often speaks. Uh, in fact, wisdom as a technical literary genre, uh, both in the Bible and elsewhere in ancient texts, often what, what wisdom does when wisdom speaks, whether it's like in the book of Proverbs or right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Ma Matthew, by the way, Matthew often has Jesus speaking with the voice of wisdom, which is a kind of personified presence in Matthew's imagination. He, he, like, he does what wisdom does, which he just says, hey, there's, like, there's a fork in the road, or there, are, or there are many forks in the road. It's like, here's the truth that you might be aware of if you step back and think about it, but you don't seem to be living with a deep awareness of that truth. That's often what wisdom does, right? Wisdom speaks to us sometimes and just says, here's something plain as day that you seem to have forgotten that you need to know. You need to be impressed with the urgency of this truth. And if wisdom doesn't speak up, if it doesn't sort of raise the alarm on this truth, we might miss it. And then we will be worse off for forgetting these things that are patently obvious that we often don't live very close to. Um, so I don't always like, like this part of Jesus, but I, ha I have the feeling that Jesus would be doing us a disservice if he didn't say some of these things that are true. Now, another like, question that this raises for me when I think about like, how there are all these different ways that we choose the destruction of ourselves and one another, um, a question that I feel when I watch political events in the world right now, when I watch the things happening in Ukraine, I, I don't know about you, but I, I have this kind of aching thing inside, which is just like, why did it have to be that way? Why are we like this? Why do we live in a world like this? Why is, like, and then I start moving into, like, these big kind of metaphysical questions you might be wrestling with these two. Like, why does it have to be this way? It feels to me a little bit like an experience that I had geographically a little while ago. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, when I think about, like, why is the road so narrow and why is it so easy for us to fall toward our own destruction, I had a very, like, concrete uh, image of this metaphor uh, a while ago in my life. So I was, I was in Northern California for the first half of vacation, and then I had the second half of my vacation in Southern California. And I thought, finally, I'm going to pursue a dream that I've had for a very long time. I'm going to cruise the Pacific Coast Highway. Do you all know about this highway? So this is the, the, old, <clears throat> the old route that like, runs along the coast of California, from Northern California to Southern California. This is not the big interstate that gets built later in our country's history. This is the old original route. And I've seen pictures of it, and I've like, dreamed about it, and I've like, seen movies where they cruise on the Pacific Coast Highway. And I just had this picture to my, myself of like, me in the Mini Cooper that I rented, right? my little sporty little car. I'm going like, to have the windows rolled down. I'm going to have the ocean out there that I can take it in, these mountains. I curated a custom playlist for this drive. 
that's true. And then I get on the PCH, and it is not what I imagined as an experience. Has anybody here ever driven the PCH from Northern California to Southern? Yeah. Well, maybe you're about to find out that I have less metal in my spirit than you, but I can tell you this is the most terrifying experience I've had in a car in my life. Let me show you. Uh, uh, this is a little snapshot here. That's one of the safer portions of the PCH. This little two-lane highway that rides so close to the edge of these cliffs that it should not be legal in the modern world. And that part happens to show some railing at parts. There's massive stretches with like these pinhook turns on the highway. When, by the way, I'm driving southbound, which means I'm in the lane that's closest to the edge. And I'm telling you, like the lane marker and then the shoulder and then the cliff is no further. I'm serious. I'm like my foot to that point on the stage. Like right there is a cliff that goes down to the ocean and there's no guardrail. And cars behind me want to go 75 miles an hour when I'm quite convinced that this is a 35 mile an hour zone based on the conditions. <laughs> so I have this line of cars behind me. And I'm not joking when I tell you my steering wheel was literally dripping with sweat from my hands. And I had to start doing breathing exercises because this is the closest I've ever come to an actual panic attack. And I remember thinking while I'm driving this road, why would we build a road like this? Like, don't we know better? That's the closest like, physical metaphor I can come up with with my feelings about the world that we live in. And like, at first, like, you think, oh, it's fine, and then you live it for a little bit. And you're like, why? Why are we like this? Why is reality like this? Where the, the road is so narrow that keeps us safe and alive, and, and, and the cliffs that we could fall off of are so close, uh, so close to the edge. And the, the problem here is I don't actually have answers for you, but I do have some theories. Um, so here's what I want to do. For a minute, I want to like, kind of step all the way out to a kind of analytical posture toward this, a kind of uh, philosophical posture toward it. And then I'm going to come back underneath it, okay? But let me just kind of step out with you, because I think some of you might be wrestling with some of these same really big questions about um, us and God and life, which is, by the way, a good uh, synonym for salvation in Scripture. Fullness of life and salvation and life with God, these are all kind of like um, held together in a kind of conceptual way in Scripture. And I think a lot of us have wrestled with, like, why does it seem like we've been set up in our nature and in our world to be um, so apt to fall off the cliff and for it to be so hard to stay on the straight and narrow? And the, the way of thinking about this that I find most compelling has to do with two big words, which are love and freedom. And I mean both of those words, both for God and for us. So what I'm about to say may not be satisfying, and it certainly may not be the right answer. This is just me like processing with you how I think about these things today. First of all, I think for God to be God, God must be completely free to be God. What I mean by that is that like the, the, there's an utter freedom within God for God to be God in a way that God is not compelled or forced or coerced into being anything that God is not. And I think God is absolute and utter love and beauty and truth and goodness. I think there's nothing in God that is not those things. And I think God is completely and utterly free to be those things. So for God to be free, to be utterly love and goodness and truth and beauty must mean that like, for us to be with God or in God, is for us to be within utter goodness and truth and beauty and love. But of course, there's all sorts of things about ourselves that are not compatible with goodness and truth and beauty and love. There's a lot of me that isn't love. 
in, in who I am today and what I am today. And so um, I don't think God can continue to be God if God can become something other than God. So I don't think God is going to become less than love. I don't think God is going to become less than goodness or beauty or truth. I think God is free to continue to be those things. And I think what God has sort of set all this up for, like you and me and creation and the cosmos at large, is love. And so I think it's also the case that we've got to be free for love in our lives to mean anything. You know, I think um, there's a scenario you could imagine. Philosophers love to play these games where humans don't have the kind of freedom that I think we have to choose to be with God and in God, to choose love or not love, to choose to grow toward God or away from God. There's scenarios that you can construct in your head where maybe that freedom doesn't exist for us, but at least my best understanding of of love uh, is only compatible with the kind of freedom, the kind of terrifying freedom, the kind of heartbreaking freedom, the kind of high-stakes freedom that we seem to have um, to make our choices, to move toward God or away from God, to be working with God or working against God, that freedom just seems to be baked into the nature of things. And I know that may not be consoling if you feel especially close to the kind of damage that we can do in the world. When you feel the pain of what we can do in the world, a lot of us get to a point sometimes where we're like, I wish we would have just had a different setup, you know? So I don't pretend that that's necessarily comforting for those of us who are really wrestling with our own capacity for destruction. But I I think like to be human is to be high stakes. I think God has set up a universe that is high stakes. And so Jesus um, begins his great sermon speaking to us of the radical generosity of God, of the utter inclusion of God. But he also knows something about the freedom of both God and us. And he seems to be saying, like, ultimately, God, God will be what God is. God is love and goodness and truth and beauty. And you will be whatever you choose to be, ultimately. And we will make choices, whether big ones or small ones, whether incremental or dramatic, to to move toward God and to participate with God and what God is helping us become, or we will make choices away from those things. And Jesus knows enough of that truth to speak to us clearly about it and say, hey, like, notice he doesn't say the gate is closed. <laughs> he doesn't say that the gate requires, you know, that you pass muster when you get there. He just seems to be observing this thing in the world and in human nature, which is that... Um, So many of us, in so many ways, choose our way out. And that's a sobering word, but if he loves us, he will tell us the truth, right? Now, side note, one really tragic thing that happens with this passage that a lot of us have felt in painful ways is sometimes churches or other religious institutions and structures, they take this warning about the narrow gate, and then they they make this move, which is like, and we will be the gatekeepers, Right? We, we will be the ones who enforce its narrowness. That seems ludicrous to me. Right? If it's true that the road is narrow and the gate is one that few find, I think the, the logical compassionate response for any religious community is that, well, then let's be as wide as possible in how we walk with one another so that we help one another get there. Right? Like, 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 like we are not the gate. Southland City Church is not the gate. You know that, right? Southland City Church is not the road. Southland City Church is a community of people walking on that road together, helping one another find it, picking each other up when we fall off the road into the ditch. Like, like there's no reason that a teaching about a narrow gate should lead to a narrow church. Perhaps the opposite. It ought to lead to, like, the widest embrace that we can offer one another so that we live out the first part of that sermon that says that God is for everyone, wants to give God's self to everyone, and then we help one another be the kind of people who find the narrow road. 
That's like the only sense that I can make of what you would do with this. Now, I've just kind of done this sort of analytical distance from the text, where I've kind of stepped back from it, and we had a little, like, college sophomore dorm room philosophy conversation about freedom and love and all that stuff. And I think those are actually really useful. I'm quite fond of uh, theological reflection. I think it's an important thing for us to do. However, I think that's an important thing to do on the way to the more important thing, which is to ask ourselves if we think that Jesus is credible, is there anything about his life or his witness or the history that has followed from his life? Is there anything about him that would make us think that he is credible? And if so, the most interesting thing to do with this teaching to me is not to kind of stand apart from it and analyze it and have opinions about it, but the most interesting thing to do is to get underneath it. To submit to it, to take it seriously and say, all right, we want to be people who are vigilant about what road it is that we are walking and whether it is leading us toward life or not. And I think that could be an analysis that any one of us could do, especially during the Lenten season. This is a really fitting reflection for the season that we call Lent. Like, like are, are we people who are becoming more and more alive? Are we on the road to life or not? Now, the tricky thing about this is some of us, a lot of us, me, most seasons in my life have become so, like, uh, habituated to, so comfortable with something that is less than life that we don't even realize that we've made peace with our own destruction in these small little ways that sort of tear us down. And one of the gifts of Jesus' life and this teaching from Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that it can kind of reawaken us to, like, no, here's, here's what it actually means to be alive, R rather than the kind of sort of, like, subpar sort of, like, counterfeit life that a lot of us settle for. A little bit like, um, for example, uh, my roommate, a buddy who I share a house with, who just went keto. <laughs> now, I don't know if you have ever had a friend on a fad diet, but they tell you about it a lot, Right? <laughs> So we both work from home, but like most days we find ourselves in the kitchen like at our mutual lunch break, and every day I hear about keto from Dalton right now. But what I'm discovering is that he's figuring out that a lot of the way he felt, a lot of the way his body was operating before he went on keto wasn't actually that great. But at the time, he didn't realize it, right? He didn't even realize that he just sort of settled for a way of feeling and being that like really wasn't that great, but it wasn't until he sort of found this other way of being that he began to look back on that other way of being and realizing it just wasn't that good. And I think that's the experience of a lot of people who begin to let this, the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, the entire picture of who he was and what he did, begin to like get into your imagination, begin to, like that, that's the feeling sometimes, that we realize that the kind of like reactionary, vengeful, merciless, anxious ways of living in the world that are different than what he describes are not the best way of being. And instead, you start to wonder, like, what if the life he describes is the one that we could actually have? Where we, where we take the violence out of circulation, which is a quote from one of my favorite preachers, where we, um, where we learn to trust the competency of a creator who's with us every day. Like, what if that could actually be our way of being in the world? Where we live in ever-expanding generosity toward every kind of neighbor, not just the ones who look like us. What if that could be our way of being in the world? And if so, doesn't that begin to sort of show us that all of our ways of being outside of that haven't been life. I think um, this is a really appropriate reflection for Lent, for the season that leads us into Holy Week and Easter, uh, for the, the season that leads uh, some to baptism, to say, I, I really want to be done with that other way. I want to be submitted to, I want to be surrendered to this way of being. And the one more move that I think is appropriate for us to make as we hear Jesus warning us about the narrow road and the, the wide road that leads to destruction, the other move I want to make 
is that I don't think we are left on our own to get there. Uh, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, after you've spent 28 chapters hearing from this Jesus and getting this picture of life and these warnings and these possibilities, at the end of 28 chapters of all of this inspiration and reflection and, and sort of um, convicting thought, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we read this. This is the very end of it. Then Jesus came to them. These are the same disciples that he's speaking to in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That means go, like, teach them, right? Help them be a part of this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what we're going to do on Easter, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So far, cool, but a heavy burden. Go teach them. Go, like, go, go get them to be like this. All right, heavy burden, right? But then this is, what, this is what comes next. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And here's the part where the sermon might get most hopeful for you or uh, might feel most naive to you. I don't know. But I will just tell you it's a matter of fact in history that for 2,000 years, people all around the planet have discovered that in some strange, mysterious, unexpected, beautiful, profound way, Jesus has been with them in this walk. That he hasn't just dropped upon us like some warnings and then left the scene and said, good luck, figure it out. <laughs> that in some strange and mysterious and beautiful and profound and meaningful way, that Jesus is actually with the people who, who say yes to this, who want to be a part of this. And again, I know that might sound like woo-woo to you or like, oh, that's cute. Pastor has an imaginary best friend. I don't know how that sounds to you. Or maybe it's very real for you. Maybe you've had this experience in your life. But I'm just telling you, it has been the testimony of people all around the globe for 2,000 years that Jesus is somehow mysteriously with people on this walk, which makes it hopeful, doesn't it? Uh, another podcast I was listening to, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, another interview um, with another person that I really admire, a guy named Father Greg Boyle. Uh, Boyle is a Jesuit priest who for uh, a long time now has worked in Los Angeles, specifically built a whole uh, organization called Homeboy Industries that helps people leave behind uh, life in gangs in L.A., which, uh, if you know anything about that, which I certainly don't know a lot, but if you know anything about that, you know that means you're asking people to leave behind a sense of family and find a new sense of family, leave behind um, one way of protecting themselves and providing for themselves, and stepping into other modalities of protection and provision. There's a lot that has to happen, a lot of healing work that has to go on, and he's been doing that work in a way that's been really well-respected by many for, like, decades now, and he's written books about it, and I was listening to uh, an interview with Father Greg Boyle, and, and the person interviewing him, one of my favorite interviewers, she, um, as far as I know, like, doesn't have any kind of like, faith identity. and um, It's one of those kind of public intellectual spaces, again, where you can hear this really beautiful and genuine curiosity in her. Where after Boyle had talked for a while about his life and ministry and like, the work that he's done and all that it's cost him and all the work, like, all the, work all the effort, all the drive, all the grit, where she begins to ask him like, how he does it and what has shaped this work for him. And it was such a beautiful and, and um, earnest answer. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, well, I'm a Jesuit. Uh, and by the way, the reason they're called Jesuits is it's just like they're the Society of Jesus. That's, that's just what it means. And he says, um, I'm a Jesuit. I've spent all these decades as a friend of Jesus. And he didn't speak of it in some kind of like philosophical way. He spoke of it in, in a very real, intimate way, in the way that I would speak of my other friends who walk with me in my life. And I loved it because it was at the end of a fairly long interview with a really, you know, smart interviewer, and it was a sophisticated conversation about 
um, all the layers of intervention required um, to help people leave behind life in gangs. And then, and then for him, when it came time to explain both the things that have sustained him and that have guided him, his answer was this um, simple, like, um, I've spent a very long time as a friend of Jesus, and he's been with me in this. And again, I don't know how you hear that or receive that today. Maybe it sounds like Father Boyle has an imaginary friend. Um, but I, I, I'm just telling you, for 2,000 years, people all around the globe have been discovering in mysterious ways um, that Jesus is with the people who want to walk the narrow road. And he hasn't just dropped this confrontational truth upon us, this warning, and then left us to our own devices to figure out how to walk it. But he's decided to walk it with us. Uh, one more note on that, which is that um, this beautiful uh, eclectic circle of sisters and brothers that you are sitting in right now is specifically one of the ways that we are told to expect Jesus to show up in, in, the, in the life of our sisters and brothers in, in the community that we call the church. And so we certainly don't do this perfectly, but one of the ways we expect that, one of the ways I expect that is in how we walk together. Again, not trying to become the gatekeepers, the ones who make the narrow road even more narrow, but those who painfully aware that the road is narrow and that there are a million paths to our own destruction call one another to the good road and to life and help one another when we fall into the ditch and keep walking together. And that's going to be the pattern that we continue to learn together. Again, we're not perfect at this, but we want to keep growing in this direction. That's what Lent is for. It's for an honest reflection about the wide road and the narrow road. It's for preparation, not just for Holy Week and for baptism, but for the celebration of a resurrection where somehow the life of Jesus became something for all of us. Not just a, a rabbi who walked around 2,000 years ago, but somehow mysteriously in that resurrection became something for all of us. Uh, a presence with us that is still today calling us to life. So that's the plan, that's the pattern. Um, that's where we're going in the next few weeks as we make our way toward Holy Week and Easter. Uh, for those of you who are thinking about baptism, uh, I'm certainly praying for you as you discern that. This is not like a high-pressure pitch. We're not going to um, like ramp up the emotions for an altar call. We just want to give you some tools, some handles to um, consider that. And if you want to talk more, our team's here to do that. And uh, we'll look forward very soon to celebrating the resurrection of the one who said, I'm with you because I want you to find that narrow road that leads to life. Uh, sound good? If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Next week, uh, we're going to deviate from the Sermon on the Mount for one week. I'm very excited. Please don't miss next week. Uh, a friend of South and City Church, a friend of mine, a guy named Sean Palmer, is coming up from Houston, Texas, just to share a word with us. Uh, Sean was with us here in October during the week when we had a gathering of sort of church leaders and other stakeholders from around the country, and I can't wait for you to hear him preach. I asked Sean, I said, hey man, it's your first time teaching us, just give us like your best hit, specifically on like the Eucharist, like bring us to the table. So next week's gathering is a Eucharist gathering, and before we come to the table, uh, we'll just hear from my brother and um, let him bring his best word for us to find ourselves there at the Eucharist before we come back to the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks ahead. Uh, that being said, may you know that God still means it when he says that God wants to give God's life to you. And may you hear the warning. May you let Jesus be the wisdom teacher who comes and points out the thing that we already know. 
that we are so good at choosing our own destruction. But just when that warning threatens you or defeats you, may you also trust that Jesus hasn't given up on walking with us. And that often the way that we will find Jesus walking with us is in the ways that we walk with one another toward life. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.